Welcome to episode 182 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm climate and energy journalist Markham Hislop. Now, today's interview is going to be really interesting because on Tuesday, uh, we published part two of our uh, Unethical Oil series, which is a multi-part series looking at oil and gas liabilities, environmental liabilities, and uh, part two was all about uh, conventional oil and gas. We're talking wells and facilities and pipelines. And part three will be about the oil sands. So while I'm just starting uh, the oil sands environmental liabilities, I've been reporting on the oil sands for years and have a, a, at least a working knowledge of, uh, of what the issues are. But on that same day, coincidentally, Environmental Defense published a report entitled Past Due, Tallying the Costs of Oil and Gas Cleanup in Canada. And Megan Egler of the Parkland Institute wrote the report, so I'm going to talk to her about that. So welcome to the interview, Megan. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this is, this is, the timing couldn't have been better. Timing couldn't have been better. And maybe let's start, can you just give us a, like a, a brief overview uh, of the report? Yeah, for sure. So this report was commissioned by Environmental Defense, and they essentially came to me and said, okay, so given Canada's climate commitments, what does responsible fossil fuel production look like? And what does that mean for the environmental liabilities that these companies will be leaving behind? So essentially, it, it was a starting point for discussion around what Canada needs to do to address climate change, and then that balance between production and the legal obligations that these extractive corporations have to deal with eventually. So will there be enough to clean them up or will there not? So from that point, I jumped into a lot of really confusing data, a lot of transparency issues, of course, around fossil fuel industry data in Canada, and tried my best to answer the questions I had. And the results were this report. Well, let's talk. We're going to get into the numbers in a moment, or maybe we'll deal with the numbers first, uh, because <laughs> which then will logically lead us into a, into the question of how accurate are those numbers. So your tally for both the oil sands and on the oil sands, we've got things like pipelines and the plants themselves. But really, the big ones are the the, the tailing spawns. Those thirty-seven tailing spawns with 1.6 or 1.7 trillion liters of, of toxic uh, water in them. And I wanna throw this out to you here, just because uh, this illustrates the issue, the problem with, with numbers, with data. Th there is a category of, of tailings pond fluid called ready to be reclaimed. And all that is, is a tailings pond that's had some chemicals added to it, and this information came from Jonathan Matthews, who's an engineer. He's been working in tailing spots for 30 years. And he said, look, it's just like you take a, you got a bucket of sludge and you throw some chemicals in there. And now all of a sudden, according to the industry and the Alberta Energy Regulator, that bucket of sludge no longer exists. So there's like 700 million liters, by his estimate, of this ready to be reclaimed tailings fluid that should be in the inventory. And it's not. And the and the the regulator hides it in effect by by putting it in this ready to be reclaimed uh, category it, that never gets reclaimed, 
and and then now disappears from the from the inventory and makes the numbers look you know deceptively lower and this is the kind of thing that happens over and over and over again when you're looking at this kind of data isn't it yeah i mean absolutely and it's it's tough especially coming from the position of an academic researcher because what what i was doing is really looking like I was not trying to recreate necessarily the numbers that are out there. And if I had, I maybe would have done things a lot differently, but I was taking numbers that were provided by either other think tanks or industry itself at some points, which there's a lot of questions around those and a lot from government and used kind of the best estimates out there for the calculations I made. And in the report, I do qualify that quite a bit saying these to me are very conservative estimates, especially like I, I used a, a dollar value for what it would take to remediate and reclaim tailings by cubic meter. And that estimate, I believe, I'd have to go back through the report again, but it wasn't even necessarily a current estimate and technologies change, prices change, all these things are very fluid and of course changing constantly. And we, I guess we just don't know how much this costs. And in my experience, the fossil fuel industry has been incredibly cagey <laughs> on what they're actually spending to do some of this work. And often they don't know how to reclaim the things that they need to clean up yet. There's a lot of research money going into figuring out what to do with tailings. There is a, um, the story behind the numbers is fascinating because you can't trust them. They're uh, looking at historic uh, Alberta regulator numbers. And, and I should point out here, this has like been like five or six iterations of the, of the regulator since, um, uh, since the like 1930s. Uh, but the numbers uh, just, when you, when you see people have FOIP, get freedom of information requests have FOIP, uh, internal regulator documents dating back to the 80s to the 90s and it's fascinating to see the regulator when it's when it's when they're talking amongst themselves right you know this is internal staff kind of stuff or maybe information they're sharing with industry and the uncertainty like you know there are 90,000 conventional oil and gas facilities uh in Alberta and the Alberta and and the regulator has no idea how many of them are reclaimed just doesn't know because because as it turns out facilities don't have to be licensed there's anyway there's some there's there's a a licensing issue in there i guess they do have to be licensed but it anyway the point is there's 90,000 they don't know how many of them are reclaimed they don't know how many of these uh, legacy wells there are they don't know how much associated infrastructure there is like some pumps some uh, the uh, pits and uh, access roads there is so much they don't know, and it does. It's not like they have, you know, uh, asterisks behind the the numbers that says, "Oh, by the way, this this might maybe could be in this particular category of liability," but we really don't know about it. It's an unknown. They don't do that, you know, until you start digging in, and and that's when you find this stuff out. And so when you say it's conservative, uh, I, I would I would put a couple of very varies in front of that. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. Like when it comes down to the fact that I couldn't even find one number 
for production. So oil and gas production in the Western provinces, you'd think that that would be a number that people want to know. There are economic reasons why that number would want to be known. And there was still inconsistencies between, say, the, the federal government's numbers on production and then CAP's numbers on production. So if we don't even know that in a transparent manner, it's really hard when you start talking about these environmental liabilities because there is an ingrained reason why the people measuring and keeping track of these maybe wouldn't want the public to necessarily know what the scale of the issue is. Yeah, and a lot of this, uh, you know, the data is, is comes from self-reporting. And uh, Dr. Kevin Timoney, I, I, there's a, a podcast episode about 10 or 15 back uh, before this one. Uh, Kevin Timoney, he's a uh, 40 years, he's been an environmental science scientist around the oil and gas industry in Alberta. And he wrote a book called The Hidden Scourge, where, where he was looking at hundreds of spill records. Uh, and he found that everyone said, uh, whatever the volume of spill was, 100% of that spill was cleaned up. It was impossible. He said, it's like, it's like pouring water on your lawn. You know, try to recover 100% of that water. Good luck to you. It's not, it's just like physically impossible, scientifically impossible. So then what he did is he said, okay, well, clearly there's something wrong here. And he reviewed, it was a monumental task. Over six years, he, inter, he reviewed over 100,000 spill records from a variety of regulators like Saskatchewan, North Dakota. and But the bulk of them came from Alberta. There was about 80,000. And he said, they're all, the, the amount of inaccuracy in those records is staggering. This is staggering. And the conclusion is you can't trust the you can't trust the damn word they say. The data, the data is stinks. And then on top of that, I interviewed and on I had, I had to grant the source anonymity. So you'll forgive me, uh, listeners. I can't reveal who it was, except that it was a highly placed AER employee who who was responsible for a lot of the data within the, the regulator. And he said, None of their none of their databases can talk to each other. They they you know they have so like decades and decades of data that's sitting in paper records sitting behind in a locked up room somewhere, and and the microfiche doesn't talk to the the computer databases and the he, he said it's just a nightmare. Nobody knows anything there. Like the the data that they provide is just simply not trustworthy. Right. <laughs> it's an interesting um, way to start this conversation, talking about both of our data in this issue, because <laughs> we're kind of shooting ourselves in the feet in a sense. Well, but, just, but, but, we, but we have a response to this. We have a response to this and to that problem. And that is that in 2018, uh, Robert Wadsworth, who at the time was the AER's vice president of closure and liability, um, gave a couple presentations to, I mean, these are private presentations, but his PowerPoints were leaked. There were two of them. And he had been working on, uh, on what was known as Directive 11 inside the AER. And this was, I think it started in 2016 or around there. And his team was providing estimates of liability. And their numbers were jaw-dropping. It was 130 billion on the conventional oil and gas side alone, and then another 130 billion dollars on the uh, oil sands, and then since then the, the the Alberta Auditor General Doug Wiley 
released a report this year that said, well, you need to add another 30 billion onto the onto the conventional side. Well, I, I just rounded it up to 300 billion because and but then you know, the story gets better. In 2019, the Alberta uh, Liabilities Disclosure Project, led by lead researcher Reagan Boychuk, who I've interviewed a number of times, they foiped Wadsworth's report. And what they found is that Wadsworth's work was very primitive. Like they had just taken, they had figured out like, you know, cost of re reclaiming a well was $275,000. They multiplied that by the number of wells. Boom, that's what you get. But what they had done before Wadsworth left and they basically, the AER disbanded the project, is they had developed like these hundreds of cost scenarios for various types of wells. And so what the ALDP, they, now they had that data, is they put it into software and, and they applied those cost scenarios to like, you know, all the, all the uh, uh, wells and other, uh, all the wells in Alberta. And, and those would be the wells that are, you know, that are uh, kind of orphan wells, suspended wells, and so on. And they came up with uh, 40 to 70 billion dollars but they didn't do pipelines and they didn't do all the other infrastructure so you add another 30 and now it's 70 to 100 right, you know? right so that that actually was the takeaway from there is not whether that number is close to wadsworth's number or your number i think the point here is that it's a really bloody big number yeah i mean i think there's something powerful too often what i do in my research is i use industry data because if you can say something, if I can say, hey, this is an issue using industry data, you better bet it's an issue. You know what I mean? Because these are conservative estimates and we're still saying, okay, I, in my report, I was saying 123 billion in Western Canada, not including pipelines and facilities. So it was still kind of in that ballpark, but using industry and government data, which we already are calling into question for transparency issues or whatnot. Well, and look at the and and the oil sands. I think is the the wild card here, uh, because we you know we've got. I'll give you the, the the current numbers. I've got them in front of me. So as of March, um, there are abandoned and site reclaimed wells in Alberta ninety six thousand five hundred and sixty two out of four hundred and sixty four thousand two hundred thirty nine. So roughly twenty percent. Right. I mean, somewhere in that in that neighborhood. And and then there are others like abandoned wells, reclamation exams. So thirty six thousand. So th the point here is that there are Alberta has a lot of experience reclaiming and closing and plugging and abandoning conventional wells. This is not something that's new. Well, when you go in the oil sands, they have no experience. You know, there's been like three percent or something of the land that was disturbed developing the oil sands has been reclaimed and a lot of it is i think the the one the only one the site that's really been reclaimed is there was a, a pit lake that that was reclaimed i don't think a tailings pond per se has actually been been reclaimed now i interviewed uh dr andre sobolewski who's been uh he um his work has been in mining tailings for 30 35 years and he worked in the oil sands in the early 90s up into the aughts and, and he said there's 900 square kilometers of disturbed area that the oil sands occupies. 
and it's all sensitive ecosystem. It's all peat and bog and and wetlands and and so on. And he says there is no place else, nowhere on earth, have we disturbed uh, an area of this magnitude and then tried to reclaim it. So any estimate, any estimate of reclamation costs is going to be wildly inaccurate, I would say, by at least an order of magnitude and maybe two. Yeah, right. You can't put a number to something that you completely don't understand, I suppose. Yeah, it, it, it's exactly right. So, uh, but let's get to that. Now, I'm very interested in the whole issue of you did the, you calculated the percentage of industry profits that needs to start going into reclamation. And I kind of addressed this, but I didn't have access to your, while I was writing, I didn't have access to your report yet. And so I'm very curious Tell us under the three scenarios that you created, the percentage of industry profits that have to go to pay up the cleanup of those environmental liabilities. Right. <laughs> That's funny because I'm like scrolling through the report right now to find. Yeah, isn't okay. that something? I, I, I find the same thing. You know, I write something, you know, like our report is is uh, almost 13,000 words. And, and then I forget what I've written. <laughs> I mean, it's always the numbers for me. Like the sentiment definitely is in my brain, but those those numbers, I know that. So the most the most conservative. So what I was using is extracted carbon. So this is the 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 emissions that are released into the air when you burn a fossil fuel. So the the most conservative scenario that I used was kind of holding that constant. So we're not calling it fair. It wasn't equitable. It doesn't really fall in line with commitments around fairness with the within the Paris Agreement for Canada. It's just saying if Canada continued producing the same proportion of global fossil fuel production as they are currently into the future, what would that look like? And the result of that scenario was that fossil fuel companies would need to pay 37% of their profits until that, that production budget was reached into cleaning up the liabilities. And if they did not start that now, they would reach the point where there isn't enough profit remaining from that remaining fossil fuel production to actually clean up those liabilities. Okay, so that's, that sorry. Yeah, 37% is high, but it they are able to do that. It just, it means that they wouldn't be giving as much to their executives and maybe their shareholders wouldn't be seeing the same returns. Oh, now you've put your finger on the issue here, because what I argued in, in my report is that oil companies have no intention of reclaiming all of their environmental liabilities. And I argued from the point of, well, look at where they allocate their capital. Where do they where are they spending their money? Well, there's two er two areas that are huge right now. Uh, the first one is this uh, is giving returns to shareholders uh, and investors. So if you look at the uh, corporate uh, investor presentations from the big oil sands companies like Sonovas and Suncor and so on, what you find is they're committing 75% of their free cash flow to invest, giving back in, in the form of higher dividends and, and uh, stock buyouts, buybacks. So the point here is that the energy transition has created so much uncertainty 
in with investors and coupled with the fact that returns since 2014 when the prices you know basically fell off the uh, the the cliff and you know in that 10 year period oil and gas is uh, generally has has been much poorer return than things like big tech so investors are looking at that and they're going okay um we've got higher you know we've got ever stricter climate policies we've got poor returns we've got uh Tra uh, energy transition uncertainty because at some point uh and and this we'll discuss this in a little bit more detail in a bit but at some point we're going to see demand destruction you know markets are going to become uh are, sorry going to start to shrink and if you're an investor who thinks that's going to happen in 2030 like the iea says you know all of that uncertainty together leads the investors to say if you want our capital you need to pay us a much higher premium we need a much higher return for that. And the oil and gas industry is a very capital intensive industry of about $32 billion a year uh, that goes into it. And it's kind of split between $20 billion on the oil and gas side and $11 or $12 billion on the oil sand side. So it, between that, uh, that and the fact that um, uh, the other thing there, oh, the other area where they're spending money is to lower greenhouse gas emissions. Now, they fought this as hard as they can, but every one of them knows that the federal government, because this is true of governments everywhere, they, they understand that emission reduction uh, is a, a key uh, government policy and it can't be avoided forever. And so they're going to have to allocate uh, capital, either to carbon capture and storage or some other means of, of lowering their emissions. Because the oil and gas industry in Canada is something like, uh, I don't know, uh, 27, 28% of national emissions. It's huge. So they got a big target painted on their back and they know it. Mm -hmm. So my question is, if they have to give capital back to investors because of uncertainty and they have no they, they just have to have it. It's a condition of continuing on as a business. And then they have to put aside money uh, for emissions reductions because of they, they're all with a big on regulatory compliance, right? That's a big thing for these large uh, public companies. Where's the money left to, to reclaim liabilities? That was the question I asked. What, so what's your take on it? Um, oh, I have so many takes on this. For one, I will, I will agree that the decarbonization of the fossil fuel industry, the way that they talk about it is important. It's a, a huge contributor to emissions in Canada, but there's still something about that image of a solar panel on a pipe pump jack that makes me want to scream for one, because that isn't enough, but it's it's not enough to continue pulling these fossil fuels out of the ground and pretending like that emission is not the responsibility of the companies or of Canada or of the entire kind of system of fossil fuel production. And I think this kind of research really calls into question some of the narratives coming out of the fossil fuel industry and the government and these, these conversations around what, what it is to decarbonize and what it is to stay in line with these climate commitments because to me there just is there is no scenario that exists where a company can be giving these record returns to shareholders while also claiming 
that they are going to uphold this polluter pays principle. And we hear that coming out of the Alberta government all the time. And then at the same time, they're saying we are also climate friendly. Like I just, if I were to have any point come out of this report, it would be that those three narratives together is a false narrative. You, you just can't see that. How they are going to withhold or uphold their obligations to cleaning up kind of the mess that's been created from fossil fuel production. I have no idea and really wish they maybe would have thought of that in the first place. I'm sorry, I can't answer that question, but oh, I can. Ask. I can. I actually, this was part of, this was part of my report. I had, I had access to FOIP documents from uh, Drew Uchuk and Sean Fluker and uh, that who are law professors, environmental law professors at the uh, University of Calgary. So going back, it's very clear, it's very clear that at, at the, the North American industry, when it got started, uh, either took no security at the beginning when the well was drilled, or they took such a tiny amount as Alberta did that it just made no difference. It was like pennies on the dollar and, you know, it was, it was irrelevant. It was cost more to administer the collection than it did to have the money. So if you don't collect money, when you begin extracting the, the hydrocarbon at the beginning of the life cycle, the well's life cycle, where do you collect it? Well, that's the problem that Al Alberta ran into. And so in 1986, uh, the ERCB, or I think it was the EUB, Energy and Utilities Board, if I remember correctly, said, we're going to stop taking security. This is just, yeah, it doesn't matter. But what we're going to do is we're going to create an abandonment fund. And We'll put the money, the security that we have that that we're not going to return to oil companies. We're going to put that in and we'll put some more in. And it was a $3 million fund. And the interest from that will, will pay for uh, orphan wells. And an orphan well, for, for listeners who aren't aware, is a, a, a well that, or any kind of facility and pipeline and so on that doesn't have an owner, doesn't have a parent. So now it becomes an owner. Usually the owner goes bankrupt or walks away and runs away and what had happened over the years and this goes way back to like the 30s 40s and 50s the big companies would drill the wells they would take the majority of the profit a lot of the profit at the beginning of the well's life when it became too depleted they would then sell it to a smaller company then very often the smaller company sold it to a yet a smaller company until it wound up with what are called stripper well operations, where basically it's a mom and pop operation and you're doing it on a shoestring and you're, you know, you can make it a couple barrels a day out of a well and, and you're just milking it until it runs dry and, or, you know, prices fall and you go bankrupt. And so what was happening is they was, this fund was supposed to take care of orphans of which there were not that many, maybe a couple hundred at most at that time. But off in the distance is the category known as suspended and inactive, which even then was at 25,000. And what happens is, so, you know, the well, the well becomes um, uh, non-economic to produce. And so you, you suspend it properly. There are procedures that, you know, uh, in order to make it safe that the company has to follow and then it becomes inactive. And the industry and the regulator always treated these wells as if, oh, no, you know, they'll come back into production at some time. We're not going to treat them as orphans. 
Well, there's an economist at the University of Calgary who did a study in 2017. Her name is uh, Lucia uh, Muhlenbach. And she said, no, you know, you can model this stuff. And even if prices doubled and, and you got a bunch of new technology that made it more economic, only less than 10% of these wells would ever be brought back into production. So I argue that the suspended and inactive category of which, just to remind listeners, is 82,635 at the present time, they are de facto orphan wells. There may be a licensee attached to it, but the licensee is either, you know, is just on paper. There's really no company there. There's no, it's not a, you know, an active company or it's one of the big companies you know, uh, that uh, I think a CNRL has like 80,000 well licenses. It's one of the big companies that just doesn't prioritize reclamation. And so all of those wells are kind of sitting there overhanging this conversation, you know, where we're worried and, and, and the industry gets around it and the regulator gets around it by saying, oh no, an orphan well is only an orphan when the AER transfers it to the Orphan Well Association and puts it in that inventory. Otherwise, it's not. And so they pretend to themselves that this big category here is not a, a big threat, when in fact, it really is mostly orphans. And it's that kind of accounting, that kind of manipulation and, and finagling and, and chicanery that is you know, leads me to conclude that the, the regulator in the industry have been lying to the Alberta people for, for decades. And they're, and they're really lying about, you know, the likelihood of this stuff being, you know, of, of these liabilities being reclaimed. Yeah, I mean, I would absolutely believe that for sure. It, it's interesting because it's almost like the lie creates an environment of fear that makes us more comfortable with the government handouts that are going to the oil and gas industry or are proposed for the oil and gas industry to do the cleanup. Like, oh, they're they're so unable to do this that we need to help them do this. But they are completely capable of doing it. And in fact, they're just prioritizing profit over their environmental liabilities and are saying that they want to do it, but it's they're I don't know. It's like oil companies pretending like they're so hard done by that they can't do their environmental liabilities and complete those obligations. But, but what but we see is record profits mean that they absolutely can. Like, would we disagree with that? I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to make an argument that is a little more sympathetic to the companies than that. <laughs> they, if we were having this conversation five years ago, 10 years ago, I would be completely on your side. But what's happened, I think, now is that the companies are running scared. You know, literally anybody who has a passing acquaintance with the energy transition can see the big trends, right? It's all to, uh, you know, on the supply side, it's all renewables, clean electricity from nuclear and geothermal and, and wind and solar and storage and all of that. And then on the demand side, it's electric vehicles replacing, uh, you know, uh, 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 internal combustion engine powered vehicles of all sorts, like buses and trucks and just not just passenger cars. And then, you know, things like heat pumps replacing uh, natural gas furnaces and and in other industrial, you know, electricity, electrical industrial processes replacing natural gas. And, and so they can see the trends. 
you know, the, it, it's it's not a question now of if uh, clean energy is going, to, and mostly by that we mean clean electricity, is going to displace oil and gas. The question is when. Mm-hmm. And and so they're balanced on a knife edge because they have to pretend, they have to have this narrative. And this is where narrative management becomes absolutely indispensable to the industry. They have to keep investors interested. They have to they have to maintain their stock price. They they have to uh, do whatever they can to pretend that it's business as normal. And that they're coping with, you know, the challenges that come up, like greenhouse gas emissions. Well, we have a plan for that, you know, like pa- the 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 oil sands uh, uh, pathways alliance. Oh no, no, we're going to decarbonize by we're going to use carbon capture and storage and on and on. So they've got narratives to keep investors happy, and to keep governments happy. And the problem is that if you believe, as I do, that the energy transition, uh, the crunch is coming sooner rather than later they're going to get caught. And that means that, you know, five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now, then it's once the dam breaks, then there's no stopping it. And it, and it's, it's a runaway train. And the, what we have now is the, a very short window to look at this and say, okay, the future we, we've got, you know, if this is an existential threat. So, Let's plan for the worst case scenario, the one I just described, but turns out to be not that bad. No problem then. We've got a little bit of room. You know, what did your mother tell you? Plan, hope for the best, plan for the worst. You know what Alberta does? It plans for the best and ignores the worst. Just pretends, la, 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 fingers in the ears. You know, it's not going to happen. That's the problem. And and it's, it needs to start planning. And these little, even the new government's new uh, liability management framework from 2020 and the inventory reduction program from 2022, while they are much better than what has come before, are still do nothing more than really tread water. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I mean, I would absolutely agree. And let me clarify, when I'm saying these companies, I'm talking about the major big oil and gas companies, not not the service companies right, right. Um, that exist in Alberta. And I don't know, I guess I have a hard time having empathy because I, I don't think that this is a surprise to them. I don't think they like there's climate denial is a big thing within their narratives. So they uh, they have contributed to energy transition, climate change, the need for kind of some of these more drastic decisions currently in actions right now they've they've helped delay those and they've they've helped kind of pull the smoke screen over what the reality is so i do believe that it is their responsibility um i think the the history of the corporation is that a corporation would come into being when they were needed and transition into something else or go away when they were no longer needed so if if we don't need these mega oil and gas corporations in the future i guess i'm i'm happy for them to transition into something else but i think that they are doing a lot and putting a lot of money towards making an environment where they're able to turn a blind eye towards the the major issues right now for us and for society so i I struggle to empathize and on on those grounds 
as far as ways forward, I do think the government will need to take a, some immediate actions and holding them accountable. Um, we're still drilling, we're still creating tailings and there is nothing stopping them from also leaving those liabilities behind. Um, right. I mean, there, there is, uh, uh, I mean, there's a number of ways to attack the, the, the issues you've raised in your, in your comments. Uh, one of them is we need to talk about regulatory capture because this is, I interviewed Dr. Jason McLean at university of New Brunswick about this. He's an expert in regulatory capture. And he says that Alberta, and you know, this is like Oklahoma or Texas, right? The, the industry, uh, sorry, the government and, and the voters prioritize growth of the industry and profitability of the, of the industry. That was their number one priority. Attracting capital was their second priority. Uh, creating jobs was the third. And the fourth was, uh, generating government revenue so that they can enjoy public services and and low taxes. And so they're kind of taking this is the con what we're seeing today and and in the near future is the consequence of all those decisions that were taken like you know 70 years ago, 90 years ago and and they became ingrained in the, the, it's not just the regulators that's captured according to Professor McLean. It's the Al Albertans themselves. You know, uh, you you know, you're you grew up in in uh, Alberta, and and polling there, public opinion polling shows that Albertans identify so closely with the oil and gas industry that that over half of them is like they are oil and gas, and any attack on the industry they or on, on oil and gas is seen as an, an attack on their identity. So the so the public, the voters are captured, the politicians are captured, the government is captured. And the industry has tremendous influence. Like it said, you know, when we talk about, well, the government needs to do this and the, and the, the regulator needs to do this, you know what? Uh, CEOs or CAP or whoever, uh, Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers, they can just, they can, you know, a phone call to the minister and that's the end of that. Yeah, yeah. I so, mean, I think that's the power in understanding where these narratives come from because the narrative that, the Albertan identity is the oil and gas identity is to an extent is manufactured also by these companies with the intention. They have brilliant communications people working in the fossil fuel industry in Canada. There is an intention to wed our identities to the oil and gas industry, as well as many as Albertans, many of our livelihoods are also wedded to the oil and gas industry. But that doesn't mean that the industry can't make responsible decisions. And it doesn't mean that we have to, as the government need to keep supporting them and cleaning up these liabilities. And I guess another point that really is kind of a bit of a thorn in my side is that even when the government has put money towards cleaning up this issue and helping out with these environmental liabilities, it isn't the companies that are struggling that this money has been going to. We saw this with the, the work I did around the 2021, kind of 2022, $1.7 billion that went to cleaning up oil and gas liabilities. And the majority of that went to CNRL, which is a company that did see record profits the three years preceding COVID. Right. And it, and is Canada's largest oil and gas producer. Right. And so, but, but it also holds, you know, by far the, the most well licenses, which is probably how it, it wound up getting the, the bulk of the, or a big part of that, that 1 billion, that $1 billion. But, I, the, the the point I want to, I keep coming back to Megan is 
that Alberta is suffering an incumbency problem. And when you know when industries are disrupted and there are large companies that uh, that dominate those particular industries, um, they they have a hard time coping with the disruption because they keep thinking this is you know the, the disrupting technology, the disrupt disrupting new business models, you know aren't aren't a threat. And then when they are a threat, they make up some other story, and and they keep telling themselves these narratives that it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And then they turn into Blockbuster or they turn into Eastman Kodak or they turn into, you know, the newspaper industry and and then eventually they fail. And you can see that the the uh, the uh, Alberta oil companies uh, have a huge incumbency issue that they just can't adapt. They can't adapt their thinking. They can't adapt their narrative. They can't adapt their their approach to things, uh, you know, and they will, you know, they, they influence the government. So the government, you know, is basically their creature. And so it doesn't, doesn't, it can't act independently and make it do the industry do things that it doesn't want to do those kinds of things. And, and so, but here's the problem, you know, all of that is, is well and good in an academic sense, but who's going to pay the bill? You know, when these, when, when the industry begins to fail, and when all of these, you know, the liabilities have to be paid and there's fewer jobs and the government's making little or no revenue from, from oil and gas royalties, who's going to pay the bills? Well, it's going to be ordinary Albertans who are going to suffer. You know, they won't be able to afford, you know, who's going to pay for the schools? Who's going to pay for the hospitals? Who's going to pay? And then they're going to have to pay out to reclaim these liabilities. Or more than likely, Canada will have to step in, and it'll be all taxpayers all across the country who who have to contribute to this. This is a crisis in the making, and mm -hmm. you know, I I often like it to a tsunami. You know, the when you have a tsunami, you have twelve minutes, uh, maybe it's fourteen minutes, I forget, but anyway, you have twelve or fourteen minutes where where the tsunami sucks the water back out, and the water recedes from the beach, and Alberta is like standing on the beach wondering where the water went and it's only minutes away from being, you know, you know, drowned in a tsunami. That's so if you know, you've got 12 minutes run like hell. And if you know, you've got a little window of opportunity here act and there, but there's no political will to act. There's no political momentum to act. Nobody's having these kinds of conversations. I mean, there've been a few uh, you know, like the Reagan Boychuk and Mark Doran of the Polluter Pay Federation, people like that have been banging this drum for years. The media has been slow to pick it up. Uh, hell, I was slow to pick it up. And you know why? Uh, because I would interview Reagan and, and you know, and and I knew I, I could I could smell the stories behind behind those interviews. But I also knew that it would be the uh, the rabbit hole of all rabbit holes, the Grand Canyon of rabbit holes. And what I found when I, in February, and, and it was the Curl uh, Imperial Oils Curl Oil Sands plant. They had a big, they had a leak, and then they had a huge spill, almost six uh, million uh, liters of industrial wastewater. It was that that convinced me I had to finally jump into the rabbit hole. Well, I can tell you, it's not a Grand Canyon of rabbit holes. It's like a hundred Grand Canyons of rabbit holes. It is so deep, so complex, so difficult uh, that, but it has to be done because it really is at the crux of Alberta's adaptation or not to the energy transition 
and whether it has a crisis or not. Anyway. Right, uh, right. So it's also interesting because what I'm kind of hearing you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the oil and gas industry in Alberta is too big to fail. So we can't, it sounds like you're saying we can't ask them to clean up all their environmental liabilities because that would eat too much into shareholder profits and they need investment to keep going. And if they don't keep going, Albertans are going to suffer. No, uh, I, what I'm <laughs> saying, what I'm saying is, is that's the, that's the perception. That's how they operate. Yes. Those are the perceptions and the ideas upon which they operate. And, and it leads them to make certain decisions that then uh, make sure that environmental liabilities are not a priority. And, and Alberta's, Albertans need to have the kind of conversation you and I are having uh, so that they understand the issues, what's at stake what I call the doomsday scenario, which is basically where you not only have an environmental catastrophe or a financial catastrophe, you have both together. Mm -hmm. You know, you have an environmental catastrophe you can't pay for. And so that that's what's coming. Um, so no, I'm not, I'm not saying they're too big to fail. I'm saying they will fail. I mean, there, there's every indication that they're, you know, sometime in the 2030s that they're, they're going to be in uh, tough shape. Uh, as prices fall and uh and then all of these chickens are going to come home to roost right 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 okay i understand more um yeah i guess i'm wondering other than just really strict envi environmental regulation or kind of the government stepping forward and demanding that these companies pay up and cover their environmental liabilities like what other options exist to both uphold the polluter pays principle, but also address this growing crisis. Because off the top of my head right now, I can't think of any other than like getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies, forcing these companies to cover their environmental liabilities, which is their legal obligation. And then what federal funding or provincial funding does exist, put it only towards orphan wells but what like what in your view what other options exist like what is the path forward now i'm interviewing you uh, yeah. <laughs> that occurred to me a couple of questions ago uh i think it's the federal government the federal government has to step in and the federal government has already stepped in in a way because after the curl spill and leak um the federal government was is launched an investigation under the fisheries act it has listened to the uh horrified uh horrifying uh stories from indigenous communities who live downstream from from these various oil sands plants and so it has uh it has created I guess it was the impetus to create, really, uh, a provincial, federal, industry, indigenous communities, and other stakeholders working group to talk about reclaiming oil wells, or, or sorry, tailings ponds. And I think at this point, uh, the federal government is the only actor here who is not as captured as all of the Alberta actors. And it could use its leverage, it could use its influence, it could use you know, it, it, you know, a lot of this is provincial legislation and the and the, the Danielle Smith's government pushes back pretty hard on federal overreach. I'm doing the scare quotes now, uh, listeners, you know, and so it would it wouldn't be easy. But this is such a big problem that I think that the only hope 
is that the federal government will intervene uh, in the way that it did with curl on a bigger scale. Right. I mean, that's a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we should, you should interview me more often. This is great. Yeah. We're, we're getting somewhere. Well, Megan, thank you very much for this. We, I think this is a, a, an, a, a useful conversation and we've covered a lot of ground here, but I don't think we can talk about this enough. Uh, and I think that it, its profile needs to be raised. I'm glad Environmental Defense did this uh, the, did this report. And, um, and thank you very much for your contribution to it. And stay in touch. Uh, let me know what other kind of research you do related. And let's let's have you back for another conversation. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to keep the conversation going and to continue listening to your podcast so I can keep on top of the whole ordeal. Well, thank you very much for this. Mm -hmm.